are starting at the 12th chapter from the Gospel according to Matthew. At that time, says the text, Jesus went to the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he, were, when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is an amazing instance where Jesus clearly states his spiritual status and uh, proclaiming himself Lord of the Sabbath higher than the temple itself. That means he divides, he already describes certain levels of existence. He describes the level of the human being, of the common human being that is subjected to the laws, to the strict laws of, in this case, of the religion of the day. And he says, some people are above the laws. This principle was known ever since time. In the old days, people did not consider each other they did not consider themselves equal to each other because they realized that in the laws of manifestation some people have more rights than other people. That is why they consider that this idea of perfect equality is not correct. You cannot equate a Buddha with somebody who is ignorant. It should never be done because for one it would mean giving too much and for one it would mean taking away necessary freedoms. That is why indeed the great spirits are controversial. A Krishna <coughs> willy-nilly will be controversial and yet in a very tolerant religious environment, in a very understanding spiritual environment, he would be, of course, accepted, understood that he was special and that you should not expect from him what you expect from the common human being. In the same way, the Romans, as I told you often, they even had it under the form of a proverb, which said, Quod licet Jovis, not licet bovis, which simply means in translation, what is licensed or warranted or allowed to Jupiter, Jupiter, the king of the gods, of the Olympian gods, is not allowed to oxen, to cows, <clears throat> that simply is a very offending way of putting it, 
in which some people are like Jupiter and some people are like cows. A modern day uh, proverb trying to show exactly this kind of discrimination which life naturally does says in front of a barrier, if there is a barrier across the road, the cows stop in front of it, the dogs try to sneak under it, and the lions leap over it. In the same way, if there is a restriction or a law, <coughs> there are those who break the law in a guilty way and get punished by it, the dogs in this example, there are those who stop respectfully in front of it, and those are those who are obedient because of fear, but at least they know exactly their position, they know their place in the economy of things, and the lions, the spiritual lions, leap over it, jump over it, because that regulation is not valid for them, it is not important. And that is why Jesus, you can see, he has even given this uh, feeling of importance. I was telling you in the other days that while Jesus is at the same time advocating such humility, he says that absurd humility is ridiculous. That humility means one thing when it is done from the heart and it, it is, should not be a fake humility, a kind of svadistanistic theatrical copy of meekness which actually means something stupid. Because, actually, Jesus, if you saw, he advises the people to, to be very confident of what they are, to have belief in themselves. He tells them all the time, you are the salt of the earth, even the hair on your head is accounted for, why are you afraid? It's like he tells them, you are important. And you, as you can see in this episode, but Jesus is not telling to people, you can do this or that. His disciples, being hungry, already had this feeling that now they are like drunk with ecstasy. Now they are living in the presence of a man who was more than all the religions of the day. In the presence of Jesus, more or less everything was allowed. As long as they were with Jesus, they could pretty much do whatever. The rules of the day were not important. They were becoming like superhumans. So even without asking or without being advised by Jesus, at least not at this particular occasion, they just go in the field and they start eating freely of the wheat or whatever is there. Therefore, they already have the feeling we are superior beings. This superiority feeling can be in an arrogant way, when it is coming from Manipura or from a snobbishness from Zvadistana, or it can be the real thing when it is the superiority of Anahata, when it comes indeed in the conditions of compassion and love, and at the same time it is the feeling that now you are dancing with angels, that now you, are, you can go there. That is why, remember, never be afraid to think high things about yourselves, because that is not the real humility. The, that is not against the real humility, humility, I mean. It is okay to realize that now you are on a path, and now you are doing things, and now you can bend some of the rules. Of course, you should always know exactly the measure, that means to which extent you can push that, how free you are of some of these things of karma. But to stay all the time and to say, I am small, 
I'm stupid, I am limited, I don't have this power, I can't do this, is actually a terrible negative suggestion. In this way, Jesus is the master of positive self-suggestion. He is advising these people, believe in yourselves, go for it, believe in yourselves. And therefore, I'm telling you all these things to make you understand a certain state of spirit. And Jesus argues with all the power of his position. He, first of all, gives us an example, the King David, of whom he claims being even bigger, which of course is a bit of an outrage for those uh, narrow-minded people, because here is a guy who is pretty much unknown. It's true, he seems to be a very exceptional fellow. And suddenly now he says he compares himself with King David, which for the Jews of that day was a kind of archetype, a kind of ideal. King David is the man who gave them stability. King David is the man who defeated and for them and gave them a place to be. King David is the man who wrote the Psalms to God and is a great mystic and everything. And suddenly there comes one who compares himself with King David and kind of like he is bigger than that. And he says, actually, the, raw, the rules do not apply even for common people. The priests in the temple on the Sabbath day, they have to do some things which are irregular and they would mean a desecration for a commoner. And yet, they don't have any problem with that because that's their dharma, that's their thing as a priest, that's what they do. And here he says, in the end, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here where he speaks about himself, obviously without at the same time being arrogant. That is always the paradox of Jesus. He knows exactly who he is and what he is doing, but at the same time he doesn't have an arrogance about that. Whenever he can, he is modest. He tells the people, don't say, don't tell anybody I did this. Don't he tries to hide as much as possible, but when it comes to the fearless setting forth of the truth, to the fearless stating of the truth, then he has to, to state the truth the way it is. And he comes back to this, which he repeated before in one of our previous readings, we were there. He says, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. In the view of the Jewish Orthodox law, there are hundred or two hundred or God knows how many rules to obey and anyone you disobey spoils the day, defiles the day, you are going to hell, you are not eligible by God, God will punish you, there is fear and punishment and whatever. And therefore Jesus says, think, I am bending a law, I am maybe breaking a law and you, you immediately you jump to condemn me like I am a sinner and I am a heretic. But he says, if you would know I what means I desire mercy, not sacrifice, that coming from one of the old prophets, then automatically he said you would have been more tolerant, you would have understood because God does not try to destroy the human being. If God would try to destroy the human being, it would be the most simple thing in the universe. Then why should the human being exist, after all, when it is the result of the will of God in, in the creation? Therefore, God is not trying to punish or torture or make impossible rules for the human being, but on the contrary, Jesus says all the time, God is all-forgiving, God is tolerant. 
God is loving, God is compassionate, and He's not going to send you to hell just because you broke the law of the Sabbath or other things like this. Because God has said, I wish forgiveness. I wish, as He says here, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This in itself is very significant. And He concludes this tirade, this saying of His, by saying, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is a fundamental saying. We can relate it with so many things. Uh, Lord of the Sabbath, when he says that, actually he proclaims himself already like God, because only God is the Lord of the Sabbath. But there are so many connections there. If, for example, we agree that Jesus was indeed born in the 25th of December, which is always argued upon by scholars, nothing definite has been found about it, then Lord of the Sabbath even refers to his astrological connection, because being a Capricorn, he is run by Saturn, which is the planet of the Sabbath, the Sabbath day. The Saturday is actually the day of Saturn, and it is actually a Sabbatic, a Saturnian day. The Saturnian things have a resonance in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture, the Saturnalis, the festivals of Saturn, and Saturn in the ancient Greek mythology is nobody else than Kronos, and Kronos means actually time. So Saturn is the oldest of the gods, the primordial time, and therefore to say, I am Lord of the Sabbath, it means at the same time, Lord of time in this way. It's like where, which is Saturday and which is Monday for me. It makes no difference in this way. I am a Lord of time. This means also I am beyond time. Also with the Sabbath, with the Saturn, we are related with the netherworld, with the other world. Always the cult of the dead was done on Saturday. The meditations for the dead, the offerings for the souls of the dead would be done on Saturday because Saturn would be the day of the dead. And therefore, by saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath, it is also like I am the Lord of those bygone, of those which are in the other world. That is why this miraculous statement, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, it is uh, so vast and it can be connected when he says the Son of Man, he speaks about himself, but at the same time, he all the time tries to identify with mankind. He says the Son of Man, the Son of Man can be in any brother, any human being, as he says it in some other place, he identifies himself with that. And therefore, Jesus in this identification, he says the human being is Lord of Sabbath, which means simply, as he says in some place, that it is not the Sabbath, it is not the man who is made for the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is some abstract, crushing force in the, in the claws of which the human being is just a victim. But he says it is the Sabbath that has been made for man. It is the Sabbath which has been made for stopping all the workaholics from stopping 24, from working 24-7 and calling their attention, hey, everybody out there, at least one day out of seven, stop and think of God. Therefore, it's kind of the Sabbath was made for men just to give even to the most simple of them all 
through obligation, if you want, at least a term where, whoa, 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 take a break, stop from all this rajasic desire, stop from all this working, 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 and give yourself a break at least one day out of seven. Of course, this is not valid in the case of Milarepa, who was thinking of God seven days out of seven. This injunction is completely useless for one like Jesus, who is God, talks of God, and is with God all the time, thinks of God all the time. Therefore, he is Lord of Sabbath. For him, this is completely useless. This is a rule which has been made simply so that human beings should not animalize completely and fall in this infernal hell of just workaholism and working like robots and just laboring and so on, and at the same time forgetting about the more noble purposes of life. And I will continue with the reading. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and the man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And that, of course, came this misunderstanding because everybody today will say, well, it sounds just reasonable, right? Everybody, charitable acts, acts of uh, uh, helping, of healing. But no, the sabbatic laws were so strict that they failed to mention this. And this is simply because the letter of a book can never describe the complexity of the human life. Look at what is happening today when all the lawmakers in the so-called civilized countries, they try to make laws. If you take the laws which govern, for example, American justice system or the European Union justice system, it's a labyrinth. There are tons and tons of laws, laws to laws and mentions and corollaries to laws and exceptions and special points and derogations. Why? Because they are trying by some things to express the complexity of the human life. And the human life will always come with some unexpected situation which is in no law or which requires a special treatment. Therefore, of course, neither the ten laws of God written in stone nor uh, the laws, the Talmudic laws or whatever, they cannot cover, they can never hope to cover every unexpected new thing. Not to mention the fact that things change. Suddenly you have got transportation, airplanes, video, um, recorded music, internet, God knows what. Those did not exist in those days. How can some text that old, that text, that letter, can cover something which is invented and new and which is a completely exceptional thing now. And therefore Jesus is away, uh, aware of this and he says very clearly from the beginning, the law must be alive. If you don't feel it, if it's not something which comes from this common sense, if it has no common sense, it's absurd. It has become completely ridiculous. And that's exactly what Buddha says. He comes and demotes a lot of the laws of the Hindus about the caste systems and others. And he says, today, these things are not valid anymore because they might have been valid in the day when they were written, 
when the legislator, Manu, or whoever made the laws of Manu and so on, when they were there, the laws were alive to their own presence and to the fact that that living society pulsated with that. But then they are not valid anymore because the society had changed in thousands of years. And Jesus simply says the same thing here, in the same way that, okay, the law written by the prophets or whoever, the scribes or the Pharisees or whoever, put the law down, doesn't, doesn't mention anything about healing. Because probably you can imagine that in that time, there were not many people who had healing powers, and they were going around healing people. And therefore, this exceptional case was simply not mentioned. And because it was not mentioned, it was interpretable. And these people, exactly as they would do today, they were trying to catch Jesus with all kind of legal corners, with all kind of legal tricks, like this is not so, and see, you are contradicted, uh, contradicting our law. So here Jesus is having to fight with a hilarious thing, which nevertheless comes from this obsession of the old Jews with this traditional law which they had to stick to mechanically, mathematically. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So, you see, the war is already open. This man is undermining whatever they say. Although he is modest and all the time he tells to people, don't say this, don't do that, these people perceive him as a threat already, and this has always been the case. Buddha was perceived as a threat in his own way. Saint Francis of Assisi was perceived as a threat in his own time. Everybody who is suddenly reaching something is perceived as a threat because he is alive and he doesn't go by the letters and he doesn't go by the book. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. Again, you see this ambivalence. On one hand, he is strong and going for it, but on the other hand, he doesn't want to brag at all about it, unless when it comes to the enunciation of the truth. You can also see that Jesus was aware of these kind of things, one way or another, and this makes a difference according to, or, or compared to other powerful people, who were perhaps not so much aware of the fact who, if they would have been more aware, uh, they would have been able to decide more clearly about what was going to happen. This awareness which Jesus has is traditionally in yoga coming mostly from Ajna Chakra. It is basically what you would describe as an advanced clairvoyance, if you prefer to put it technically like this. This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah. Quote, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. 
until he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. End of quote from the prophet Isaiah. And we continue. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. So, again, this form of blindness and muteness, it's not only being blind and mute, it's one of the most terrible afflictions, but at the same time, uh, as you know, today would relate that with being severely handicapped. It would be a syndrome of severe handicap. Funny enough, in those days, people considered this, and it would be the same in other cultures, like in Ayurveda and Tibetan medicine, they would often consider that actually a form of possession. Today, uh, I don't know what doctor will say, this guy has the syndrome alabala, or whatever you'd call it. Uh, and therefore, uh, he will simply, it would be simply catalogued as a nervous problem. But in the time of Jesus, and Jesus acts on it, and it happens on it, he actually considers it a fundamental disharmony with the human archetype, and therefore he considers it a possession. It is like this human being blossoming out from its matrix, from its own blueprint, it has not blossomed out correctly. It's like on the underlying level, there is something which distorted the appearance of this human being, and that therefore would be a demonic possession, a form of possession. This is a pretty hard and politically incorrect type of thing, which automatically says you have to be careful with this kind of uh, things, because they will have also a spiritual cure. Ultimately, the reason of it is spiritual. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? The name is metaphorical because allegedly Jesus comes anyhow from the lineage, from the tribe or whatever you call of David. But at the same time, the son of David would mean simply the Messiah, the chosen one, the special one because here things are indeed exceptional. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Here, Jesus is giving one of the ultimate arguments 
which can be used successfully and which becomes one of the signs of seeing things which are demonic or not. That means, first of all, automatically the one which is divine, the one which is inspired by God, automatically, sooner or later, in a way or another, exposes what is demonic. That means, it is, as Jesus says, a kingdom cannot be divided against itself. Basically, he says, the very fact that I do this shows that I am what I am saying I am. Because one demon, here in the Bible generally, in the Christian tradition, I would like to make a mention. They use all the time the name demons, driving out demons and so on. I would like to remind you, and to tell it to those who never heard this, that according to the strict metaphysical tradition, there is a big difference between the concept of demon and the concept of devil. The devil or the satanic spirits are spirits which belong to hells and they are completely bound, they are completely turned on to the diabolic, on to the satanic, on to the darkness, on to the hell. And the demonic is the equivalent of what the Indians call the asuras, the enemy of the gods, and it is exactly the equivalent of what the old Greeks have called the Titans. The Titans were always clashing with the gods. Jupiter and the other fellows were always fighting with the Titans. Also, the history of Indian uh, mythology is full of uh, conflict between uh, certain uh, demonic entities who are doing mischief one way or another. Please be informed that, strictly speaking, although the Bible uses generically the name demon meaning by it devil, meaning by it the satanic entities, if you really want to be metaphysically correct, instead of demons you should always put devils or satanic entities, entities of hell, and the demon is something else. The demon is an entity which is characterized by a great pride, and which can be sometimes good and sometimes bad. If you want a kind of typical archetype of the demon in the Western modern culture, would be the godfather of the Sicilian mafia, the Al Pacino godfather, who is sometimes a nice guy, a noble man, loving his family, protecting, generous, living by some noble principles, gentlemanly, and sometimes just a sheer murderer, just a bloody murderer, just a terrible person for some things. And therefore, this kind of ambivalence, which is sometimes translated by a temperament which is moody, now I'm caressing you, now I'm kicking you, is typical the demonic character. The demon can be, for example, good sometimes. Example, it is one of the asuras, one of the titans, who brought fire to man. Mankind, according to Greek legends, was given fire by Prometheus. It is Prometheus who came and gave the fire. Not the gods. The gods were kind of so detached, or maybe so afraid, or maybe so jealous, or whatever, that they didn't give the fire to mankind. It was 
Prometheus who gave this gift to mankind and actually he took upon himself such a terrible karma by doing that that he had to endure severe punishment for years, centuries, whatever according to mythology for this one deed that he gifted the gift of fire to the primitive mankind of that time and therefore here it is you can say thank you Prometheus you know Prometheus actually gave us the fire therefore a titan, an asura, a demon can sometimes do good things and then he gets very angry or he gets very proud or he gets full of some flustering thing and suddenly he kicks you in the balls and he is on the bad side again it's kind of unequal, up and down and up and down moody, a little bit like a whatever a drug baron, a drug lord or whatever having a lot of power, sometimes being generous and kind and then becoming cruel and murderous it's the same ambivalence, remember, which runs this that is why this was a parenthesis which I have to make because the diabolic spirits, the satanic spirits, the devilish spirits are belonging clearly to the hell and to the infernal hierarchies of hell and they just have a clear purpose which is diabolic, satanic, dark and destructive. The demons are simply tormenting themselves and the others around them through their own pride and ego. They can be very powerful but at the same time they can suffer infernally and in this way you can see this kind of things. You can even extend it and say that even a spirit like Napoleon has something demonic. He is a little bit of a Siddha. His mind is hypnotic, expanded. He has an enormous memory. He can do five things at the same time. He can sleep three hours per night in the saddle of the horse and he can do things which would generally be considered superhuman. And at the same time he is a warmonger he is shedding blood, he is all the time bent on satisfying his own arrogance and vanity and pride, and it's basically a terrible mixture that we are having there. Therefore, you can say that a spirit like Napoleon is more like demonic rather than satanic. This difference is very, very important because it talks about motivation, while the diabolic spirit serves Satan, serves the devil, and whatever he does is meant to destroy or to satanize, the demon doesn't have that intention. The demon's master is himself. The demon serves only himself. The demon wants, is just having an exacerbated, an exaggerated ego, and he is just serving all the time that ego of his. And that is why the demon does not necessarily have a diabolic or satanic motivation. But the Christian theology has forgotten to make that distinction. And that is why the name demon is used inconsiderately by this meaning uh, everything. Actually meaning most of the time the diabolic spirit. And therefore, here coming back to the things of Jesus to the sayings of Jesus, Jesus is very clear. He says, what you say is nonsense, because the devil will not fight his own. 
the devil will not fight against the devil. Therefore, uh, in some nations, in Romania, for example, we have a proverb which says that a raven will never pluck out the eyes of another raven, which means thieves stick together, bastards stick together. They have a code of honor from thief to thief. It's kind of, they will always attack somebody else. A crook will protect another crook because it's like his own. A corrupt man will try to hide another corrupt man because he can identify himself with that. And in that way, uh, it's obvious that the diabolic force will not act against the diabolic force. And that's always a symptom by which you can see things. Because sometimes some people have this honeyed tongue and they tell long stories, but when it comes to the deeds, you will see that they do not fight what is diabolic. And not fighting what is diabolic is automatically a sign that something is not okay, because the divine would fight those things which are diabolic. Remember that very well. And therefore Jesus says, as long as I am exposing, as long as I am uh, disclosing and telling you this is diabolic, this is satanic, and I am warning you against it, then automatically how can I be that? Therefore, uh, it is exactly the opposite of what René Guénon in the 20th century said, the biggest trick of the devil is to make people believe he does not exist. And then people will be completely helpless, completely defenseless, completely unaware, completely unprepared. They will lower their guard and they will be taken completely, completely like this, so easily. And therefore, that's the most easy trick of them all, that the diabolic force should convince that it does not exist. And therefore, Jesus is doing exactly the opposite. He all the time rings the bell and says, there is the devil. Look, the devil manifests in that. Look, the demons manifest in that. Look, the satanic manifests in that. And in this way, he is actually teaching the people a very important lesson. That is why, remember that sometimes the things of this new age superficiality which says, oh, everything goes, ah, nothing is diabolic, it's uh, all this kind of, oh, let's be modern, all these are just uh, middle-aged superstitions, uh, there is nothing diabolic, you know, people believed in all kinds of superstitions, but now we are so smart, we are so new-ageish, everything goes. Well, not according to Jesus. Jesus is very adamant on this thing, that there is diabolic, there is satanic, there is darkness, and in that way, he actually uh, even uses that as a symptom of what is fighting against that. I'll stop for five minutes so that you can relocate, and that this will, because I have to shout, this wind will last only five minutes and then again.
Let's wait five minutes and see because such strong wind doesn't last more than ten minutes. Yeah. So let us try to analyze further what Jesus says here. He's giving us a wonderful sign, this supreme argumentation of his that look, I am exposing the action of the diabolic, of the darkness, of the satanic, and even of the demonic. And in this way, he basically gives a sign which is of course uh, easy to misinterpret because you can say well even a lot of crazy sects and fanatics they speak all the time about the demonic or the diabolic and so on it may be that they speak but they don't do things like fighting against it it is a lip service and later somewhere in the text Jesus actually complains exactly of that, that it's all lip service, that it is not the real thing. That means Jesus says, you'll never find the devils fight against the devils. Somebody would be able to say, well, uh, wouldn't that be a kind of a art of war, a kind of a supreme uh, Chinese-like strategy 
that a devil should pretend to fight against another devil and then the people should believe the first one and think that because he fought against the second he cannot be a devil and no it appears that the laws of manifestation are made in such a way and the diabolic force is so dark and so out of the consciousness that it would not act in this way this kind of judgment does not fit because else you could imagine take this statement and then the devil would be able to use it to play a mock conflict with one of its own lesser representatives and in this way make you believe that the first one is not that bad after all that works perhaps in politics when somebody a manipulator tries to expose another manipulator or when I don't know what kind of secret organization they kind of expose a branch, uh, uh, a dead branch, a little branch, a secondary branch of their own organization and then people say, well, those who did the exposure, those who did the disclosure, they cannot be so bad because they themselves did the disclosure. But this works in politics because actually the people who do the disclosure they may do something like a word like speaking but they themselves they do not abide by that they do not live by that they do not actually act according to that it is characteristic for example to see that religious institutions while at the same time claiming that they are spiritual and uh, all these typical Western religiousness like uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they are all so fanatic and so full of rules and so on, they do not try to uproot the most basic diabolic things from their own yard. That means as long as you are a good Christian, that means as long as you play an obedient sheep, in your flock, they are willing to cut you a lot of slack. Even if you are the godfather of the mafiosos of the Cosa Nostra, you can still go to Vatican and kiss the right hand of the Pope and be praised and go and take communion and so on. And if you are a murderer and you are the author of a thousand abominations, but because you are one of the flock, it would be okay. It doesn't matter that you belong to the East India Company and you are a bloody pirate in the Chinese Sea and you are trafficking opium to China and destroying the whole nation. If you are a good Protestant Anglican believer, then you are okay. You are one of the Christians and those bloody people out there, they are the heathens. They are the unimportant ones, the ones who will burn to hell, no doubt. And therefore, uh, it's always the religion goes like this. Look at Christianity. You just try to go into the Christianity in a Christian environment and I don't know, speak about the laws of karma or about reincarnation or about the ten great cosmic powers or about uh, the tantric continents of the sexual energy and you will be demonized immediately, thrown in the fire of hell uh, literally for your uh, heretic opinions but at the same time Christianity allows that all the dignitaries of it and all the people around should be egoistic ego which is a crime much bigger than all the others 
is condoned, you know. People can be proud, they are even advised, you know, when somebody like a leader or somebody is proud, people say, this is a proud member of our congregation. While Jesus never recommended pride, and he claimed it was diabolic to have this arrogant, vanitous type of pride. And basically, you get to the fact that these people fight against shadow, they fight shadows, they fight for all kind of imaginary evils, they fight for the letter of the book and all kind of absurd superstitions and dogmas, and when it comes to the real spiritual effort, there they don't find it. When suddenly you get somebody like Saint Francis of Assisi, he's persecuted. All the stupid rich citizens of the town where Francis was born, Assisi, assumedly, I don't even remember, his father and all the rich bourgeois, bourgeois guys who are getting rich from war and from plundering neighboring cities and so on, they were good citizens and Saint Francis was a dangerous hobo who had to be chastised and who had to be put in his position. So they sent armies, they sent people, they killed some of his disciples, they burned his church, they tortured him in a Catholic world where this man was preaching literally the word, the word of the Bible. It's kind of, how can the church at the same time, or any other religious institution, pay lip service to some crazy dogmas, and at the same time take people like Francesco di Assisi, or like Padre Pio, or like other great ones, and persecute them in their own cradle, in their own environment, in their own birth. The men like Al-Halaj or Mansur, they were killed as being heretics, because one of them stood up in the mosque and said, I am Allah. And on the other hand, Islam allows all kind of assholes to do all kind of horrible things and proclaims them good Muslims. This is the abomination of it, because all these organized things, as Judaism was doing in the time of Jesus already, they were having a caste of their own. It was a clan system of their own. They were the ones with privileges and nobody was supposed to mingle or to undermine their privileges. And the fact that they were liars and cheats and hypocrites and the fact that they were paying lip service to some dead rules and the fact that they had a rampant ego, a painful ego, this didn't mean anything. It meant more that this poor fellow called Jesus was healing on the Sabbath day or was eating without washing his hands or God knows what other ridiculous, ridiculous little thing, little rule or dogma was broken. And therefore, Jesus says not in lip service, but when you see that somebody indeed exposes the work of the demons, of the diabolic forces, that's where it is. For example, in the Middle Ages, in the 1600s, where people were much more aware of the demonic and the non-demonic because of the, uh, simply of the age in time when this was happening, when first time, for example, tobacco was brought to, the, to Europe, and when it was described in which way the shamans of South America use it, for what kind of magic and shamanism, and what do they do with it, and what kind of effects the tobacco leaves, 
then unanimously the Western Christianity has called tobacco the grass of the devil, the devil's herb. It was called the devil's grass because actually the use of it was giving some phenomena akin to demonic possession, very clear. Was this preserved? No. Today the Christianity will never go against taking uh, smoking tobacco, although originally it was called the devil's grass. Everybody can smoke the devil's grass, even the priests smoke the devil's grass, and nobody seems to care about it. But God behaved that you should dare to say something about reincarnation. This is the paradox of it, that a lot of things which would be directly demonic, which would have practical effects, they would be considered okay, uh, you know, we can live with that, let it be, and the real things, the things which are painful, therefore, which are spiritually painful, they would be alive, allowed uh, in a cheating, in a, uh, in a uh, hypocrite way, and some things which are just uh, a matter of showmanship and flashy image, are criticized violently and it's like the whole law the whole integrity of the religion depends on those theatrical little details when the whole foundation is already crumbled and the whole foundation is already rotten and this is why Jesus says you can see it like the tree can be known by the fruit uh, he comes to that in a second actually again he simply says it's impossible that somebody who comes forth and says, look, anybody who smokes tobacco should know that tobacco puts you in touch with some demonic entities. It closes your heart, it diminishes your love, it has some symptoms which are akin to demonic possession. Don't. It is an act of almost black magic. It was done by some shamans who are doing witchcraft and forms of bloody magic which would be qualified as black magic today. And therefore, somebody who stands up like this, is hard to see that such a person is indeed diabolic. Because a devil would never do that. A devil would always bypass the painful truths, the ones which really point to where the diabolic things are. That means you can have people talking about the devil. All these crazy sects like the Pentecostals or the Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, they keep raving about the devil and they have all kind of crazy things. But among them, there are people who are egoistic and they are condoned. Nobody says, whoa, you being an egoist, you are a shame unto our community. It's much, more, it's much worse to be a, an egoist than to be a fornicator. But no, the poor fornicator will be shunned or whatever, and the egoist will be tolerated because he is a proud member of our community. He is a pillar of our society. While that pillar should be whipped every day until his ego would die in agony. But no, the priority is different. The devil never destroys its own. Remember this, because... This is fundamental, and this is how you are going to see the interaction of this. That is why, yes, some formal things can be done, but the real things, such as fighting directly against the diabolic, this indeed shows automatically something which is divine. That is why here you have a wonderful 
thing which, again, by which Jesus gives a very important criterion in the spiritual life. And he says, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. That means, how can I go and cast the demons out if first the demon has not been bound, if it was not tied down? That means it's obvious that in the moment when I am casting out the diabolic spirits, I automatically cast, I automatically tie them down. I automatically put them in a position of immobility. That reminds us very much the attitude of Padma Sambhava when those demonic entities were shaking his monastery. He tied them down. He went and grabbed them and said, what are you doing to my monastery? And he chastised them. He brought them to discipline. Can we... Anybody has a torch? And then let's light a couple of candles and let's continue. It's okay. It's okay. We are stubborn. This reading here generates some oppositions, as you can see. Somebody out there is not happy. <coughs> So therefore, Jesus here even, he says, I first tie down the strong man, I tie down the demon, and thus I can make order in here. So in this way, he actually reveals slightly to those who know a principle of exorcism, one of the principles which uh, relies or which is at the basis of casting out infernal influences. And now he strikes really hard, and he comes and says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, this statement is supreme, because Jesus proclaims himself, I am the one that I am, and then in this he says it's a seesaw, you know, it's 50-50. It cannot be in the middle, there is no third position here. It's only black or white. It's true, there are many shades of grey, but they still have a middle point, which is 50%. There is more than 50% grey, and there is more than 50% white. Uh, whichever side of it you are, you are nevertheless to the upper or lower side of this. And in this way he says, exactly as somebody cannot chase out the devils unless he is not at all a devil himself, because else the devil will not fight its own, then in the same way, automatically, the conclusion is obvious. If I am the one that I am, and I'm telling you that I'm doing this with the Spirit of God, because he says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That means then it's real. Then he says, if I am that, it's obvious. And then there is kind of things are black and white here. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. It is very significant that the truly spiritual beings of this planet, even the people of the Himalayas, even the sadhus of India and others, they have always loved Jesus. Ramakrishna loved Jesus, Yogananda loved Jesus, Shivananda loved Jesus. All the great yogis, all the enlightened ones, who are given the knowledge of this, they automatically love Jesus. Kahlil Gibran loved Jesus. Rumi loved Jesus. 
Omar Kayam loved Jesus. They were from different religions, they were from different parts of the world, and yet they had love for Jesus. In this way, Jesus makes himself like a beacon, like a symbol. I symbolize something, I stand for something, I am somehow the most bright symbol of something. Are you with me, or are you not with me? Jesus in this way starts putting like a kind of condition, are you afraid of me, do you hate me? then you must belong to the demonic family because only the devils are afraid of me and hate me and they want to see me out of this. It is only the devil which fights against me because I am from God. And in this way, he doesn't leave any trace of, of doubt. Uh, Jesus says it at some point, I don't know if in Matthew or in another gospel, he says, he says it so miraculously. He says, of course, the world and its demonic forces will hate you because you have won, you have defeated on the world. It's just natural that it will be so. So Jesus, for not for a second, he claims that, oh, I came and I'm going to bring a lot of peace and even the demons and the devils are going to fall in love with me and lose their grip and lose their thorn and lose their claws and teeth and are going to become benign, and no. He always speaks about the division, a very clear division. This world cannot go without a division of this sort. It's the dialectics of evolution to work in terms of polarity, in terms of opposites. And therefore, here, Jesus is very clear about it. And the logical conclusion, it's an unavoidable logical conclusion, Jesus says, if I am with the Spirit of God, and indeed I am, because there are only two alternatives. Either I bring you the Spirit of God, and I am in the kingdom of God, or not. This thing is a yes or no thing. And if I am in the Spirit of God, and if I am from the kingdom of God, then automatically the thing is, you are with me, you are with God, you are not with me, you are against God, and that is a pitiful state of being. And he continues, And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he means the Spirit of God, will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, he, or the Shiva aspect, as you remember, will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. This is a frightening statement and it contains in it again a great truth. When he, spirits, when he speaks about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God, remember always the diagram which I did last time that the Trinity the triad of God, the triadic structure of God in Christianity speaks about God the Father, who is the equivalent of Paramashiva, Paramatman, the absolute Tao, the one which is above any duality, and then it comes down to the two principles, the Son and the Holy Spirit, which are nothing else but the masculine and the feminine, the ultimate polarity of the universe, illustrated in the tantric tradition by Shiva or Purusha, the non-manifested, and Shakti or Prakriti, the manifested force. And Jesus here 
says something formidable. He says, now you are, by this thing that you are challenging me on this, you are actually acting against the Spirit of God. You are acting against the active part of God. The Holy Spirit of God is the breath of God. This fits so well with prana, that Shakti is the universal prana. And what is prana? It is the breath of the universe. It is the svara, it is the universal breath. It is the macrocosmic expression of the human prana, that is the human subtle breath. Therefore, Shakti is the breath of the universe. It is the life of the universe. And therefore, Jesus here says, if the Holy Spirit is the Shakti, the life of the universe, the breath of the universe, the prana of the universe, there you have a problem. Because Shiva and Shakti, Purusha and Prakriti, Purusha, Shiva is inactive, is a corpse, right? It is lying under the feet of Shakti and it's, his only function is the cosmic consciousness, the awareness. Do you want to tell something against Shiva? You can stand up and say, Shiva, you are stupid. What will happen? Nothing will happen because Shiva is cosmic consciousness. It will not act in any way and at the level of consciousness, whatever you say, is integrated in a transcendent nature and therefore things are the way they are. But if you act against the Shakti aspect, the Shakti aspect is bereft of consciousness. The consciousness is not in the Prakriti, it is in the Purusha. Purusha is a consciousness without force and Prakriti is a force without consciousness. And therefore not having consciousness, it will not have necessarily the capacity to forgive. That means it is the consciousness which can violate the laws of manifestation, perhaps, and interfere and say no. Here there will come a miracle. Here things will be against the laws of physics and against the normal laws of manifestation. But in terms of Shakti, the energy moves only according to its laws. The energy is conditioned by the laws of resonance, by the laws of correspondence, by the various laws of energy, polarity and others. And therefore the energy, you can say, acts mechanically. It simply acts organically. And that is why Jesus is very clear. He says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. That means if you say something against Shiva, nothing will happen to you because Shiva is pure consciousness and as thus is compassionate and transcendent. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. That is why the Christian Church came with the concept of sins against the Holy Spirit, which are much worse than the mortal sins. In Christian theology, they are defined seven, the seven deadly sins, the seven mortal sins. They are not the worst. The worst are the sins against the Holy Spirit, because those are indeed going to the bottom. That is why Jesus here makes a frightening statement. The sin to err against the Shakti nature simply will entail a boomerang effect from the mother nature. And that boomerang effect, it's a little bit like the laws of karma. There is nobody behind the laws of karma 
who sits and laughs and enjoys when people bite the dust because of the stupid things which they have done. The law of karma can create reactions which are utterly cruel. Look at some people on this planet, how mutilated, how ill-treated, how in what terrible conditions they are, and you can cry with compassion, and the law of karma will continue to pound them, will continue to crush them, will continue to work on them. And it's like there is no universal mercy. The law of karma is not created for mercy. It's like a mechanical boomerang action and reaction law of the universe. Once you are under the incidence of that, there is no way you can get out of it. The hammer will fall and blow you all the way. This is a mechanical action of energy and it cannot be stopped because it's the very balance of forces in this manifested universe. That is why, remember, making mistakes against the Shakti aspect, against the Holy Spirit, is something which you don't want to do because the reaction will not be tempered by consciousness. It will not be a reaction which will be moderated and softened by any aspect of consciousness. It will be simply a flashback. It will simply be a backfire. It will simply be like a reflection in the mirror and you are going to get exactly what you created. You sow wind, you reap a storm. That's the law, as Jesus puts it himself here. And therefore, that is the worst that you can do. That is why the Tantric Yogis of India and Tibet, they are appalled, for example, by all these kind of things, like I was telling you sometime, that in India, in China, and some other similar places, for example, the people in their culture in the last 20 years, they kill the female fetuses. They make a holocaust of killing small girls in the womb of their mother because they are not desired. This is a crime against the Shakti and there is no mercy for this one. When it comes back, it comes back full power and there is nothing which can stop it because it's directly the power of mother nature. It's an offense directly to the breath of God, to the prana of God. It's an offense directly to the Holy Spirit. And that is why it is important for you to think in these terms and to think that this active, this dynamic part of God that is the Shakti aspect works in a formidable way. And that is why while today some people have taken it lightly and they say, ah, the Holy Spirit sins against the Holy Spirit and they would even make fun of it and so on. Those are really completely ignorant people. Some of them heavily demonized and some of them fully diabolic who are going to bite the dust terribly. You see people being born in this life mutilated. You see people being born in this life schizophrenic and completely mentally incapacitated. You can see people because of this being born in the most terrible conditions of existence. And all you can do is feel compassion because you realize there is nothing you can do about this condition.
mistake is the sin, it is the blasphemy, the mistake against the Holy Spirit. That is the ultimate class of it. And uh, it's much, much worse than anything else because Jesus himself says it shall not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come by this meaning from life to life for aeons and aeons until it will be completely paid for or compensated. That is why blasphemy and things like this are one of the worst things that you can do and uh, it is one of the things that you have to consider very seriously. Remember that Milarepa got away with killing people, but with the sins against the Holy Spirit, it is much, much more difficult unless the forgiveness of God interferes specifically for that. And Jesus continues, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, who are evil, say anything good? Basically, he says, since you are egoistic and demonic and corrupted, automatically what you say is bad. When a religion is based on people that are egoistic and corrupt, automatically it has become terrible. Jesus and this is one of the terrible motivators in Christianity, <coughs> calls these people brood of vipers. He doesn't even see them as human beings anymore. He catalogs them with animals. At other times he calls them by other names, like wolves and other things. And he, this is very significant because the Jews were having very clearly this kind of understanding that uh, some people are humanized by their spirituality and the other people who are in the outer darkness they are more belonging to the class of the animals and here is Jesus taking precisely the scholars of the old law and calling them brood of vipers like actually you have become the outsiders you have become the ones cast in the outer darkness so he says, how can you say anything good? Whatever you say is tinted because, again, from an evil tree, there comes an evil fruit. And he is adamant on this. <coughs> for, for out of the overflow of, heart, of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's a beautiful <coughs> metaphoric idea in which Jesus describes the heart both as the heart chakra, but also as the inner heart, as the core of our being, as what, the, what Gurdjieff called the essence, the essential nature of our being. And he says, you reflect what you are deep in there. Therefore, if you are bad, you produce, you ooze things that are bad. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. That's also a perfect interpretation in the laws of resonance. Because it's not only, you don't have it in you, stored. It flows through you from the universe. We are like windows, like doorways, through which a certain influence channelizes from the universe. And if I am good, I am in resonance with the paradise, and all the time I say and do the good things. And if I am having a shitty resonance, 
I'm all the time attracting things which are evil, bad, demonic, torturing, and an evil tree produces a poisonous fruit. Therefore, always look at the kind of effect which you produce around yourselves. What kind of fruits does your life produce? It is very important to consider that intensely. But I tell you that man will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. Suddenly, it is all reduced to the word that they have spoken. The power of the word, remember, it is so important for Jesus, who he himself heals with the word. He himself is labeled as being the word, the logos of God. And God said, let there be light. This word is so very important. Therefore, this word, the mouth expresses the overflow of the heart. Therefore, he says, in the day of the judgment, men will have to account even for the careless words that they have spoken. Therefore, it would be important to meditate at this deeply. It is better to hold your mouth shut than to say something which is indeed bitter and which is demonic and which is indeed evil. Some people say, I can't hold my mouth shut and I have to say it, you know, because it's more honest to show you who I really am. But, for example, the fathers of the desert, they never thought like this. They thought it is better to be shy, it is better to be timid in your heart and not to blurt out every shitty thing which comes out of you because you will have to account for it. It is better to suppress it and to sublime it inside yourself, to do some alchemy and to transform the venom into nectar, and then to blurt out words of blessing, words of love, words of beauty, rather than to blurt out words which stain your consciousness, which defile your consciousness, and therefore which are somehow irreversible. For, he says, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. That's such an amazing statement, which reduces the whole problem of the mind, and of the karma, and of the resonance, to actually the words. The words which you say are the words which acquit you or condemn you. Remember this, this is a subject of intense meditation. What do you say around you? What are you spreading around you? Peace or terrible things? Light or darkness? Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. It's funny, and it always happens in the life of Jesus like this. It's like, and if, if you have, when you have not been there, you cannot really understand where it comes from. There exists a state of inner fulfillment. When you study things such as the higher levels of Tantra, the higher levels of spiritual practice, you discover that the Supreme Absolute reflects a reality which is called subjective. God is subjective because God is alone. God is His own judge. 
God is his own witness. And therefore, this is automatically equivalent with I am. I am and nothing else. And therefore, if I am, I am my own measure. I am judged through myself. Therefore, this is subjectivity. In the same way, the spiritual being who is immersed in this ocean of spirit is experiencing a kind of form of subjectivity. That means, I am the Alpha and the Omega. You see that Jesus is so confident. Jesus thinks of himself like he is the navel of the world, really. The whole world spins around him. The whole truth of the universe spins around him. And this is a very subjective factor. And in this way, Jesus all the time seems to be doing miracles in a bit of a whimsy way. He is his own man. When he feels good and when he is satisfied that people show faith, then suddenly he is ready to pour. Then ready he is ready immediately to overflow. He answers so beautifully to people's faith. But if he feels that people are manipuristic, sarcastic, cynical, skeptical, and just provoking him and so on, that he, then he gives all the time the finger back. He says, no, you are not going to see anything. He is all the time performing major miracles, he is stopping storms and raising people from the graves. He is walking on water and healing mutilated people and handicapped, heavily handicapped people. And at the same time, at a simple... People could say, well, couldn't he have just made a, take a stone and make it float through the air a little bit? Or do something really, really small, which for such a big spirit would have been peanuts and there wouldn't have been so much karma related with it. But it's like, because of this polarity, you are the bad tree, and this is what comes out of you. Your poison, your venom, your diabolic things, he refuses. He would never allow himself challenge. Even in the end, when he is brought in front of the Caiaphas and the high priest and the others, and he is challenged, what, show us, do something, he never does anything. There is nothing which can be done like this. Show us. Do it now. Let's see. Nobody. Anybody who has been there and who has been whatever Ramakrishna did miraculous or Milarepa did miraculous or whatever, they never did it on command. They did it at some point where they subjectively thought now it's the right circumstances are fulfilled and I wish to do this. If it didn't come from inside them, they wouldn't do it. And that is why Jesus cannot be brought in front of a courtroom. He cannot be put in the laboratory and say, okay, now bend the spoon with your eyes. Show us the way you do it. And actually, many people endowed with paranormal powers in history, not as far as Jesus perhaps, but still people who had some paranormal powers, in front of this kind of demonstration, show me, they were not able to do it, or they were able to do it much less than in another way. That means even a fellow like Uri Geller bending spoons and doing whatever, when suddenly he got some crazy ideas, he did incredible things. 
at some point Uri Geller even stopped the Big Ben and he did all kind of crazy experiments like this when he felt so it's a very whimsy thing in a certain way and when people told him come in the laboratory and do this and we are filming you then suddenly a little bit like a thing said no nah, I don't want to show it to you it's kind of you don't deserve it you know who are you to take me to a judgment like this it can sound as a pride, as a vanity, although in the case of Jesus, it's obviously not created by vanity, because the main landmarks of his life don't show him as being a person of pride and vanity, but nevertheless, it shows directly that with some of these higher things, you cannot play. Remember, I told you, sometimes people with strong manipura, they have a talent to manipulating even people higher than themselves. There can be people who are on Vishuddha, artists, creators, great painters or very aesthetic people, musicians or whatever, and they still get paid by an asshole like Napoleon who is the emperor and has money and power. And then a poor genius like Galileo or Da Vinci or Rubens or Beethoven, he has to, has to kowtow he has to crawl for the mercy of a manipuristic asshole who in this world has power and efficiency. And therefore the Manipura people, they love to manipulate others, especially if they are higher spirits. That means a proud manipuristic king, he would love to have to his little finger a clairvoyant, a painter, a composer, people of high spirit, because it's kind of, uh, you know, I am powerful, and even the high ones, they have to kiss my big toe, because I am in charge here. And therefore, there is a tendency of this, that people who are with big manipura, they have this uh, demonic, uh, they have this egoistic, egocentric thing, that I can screw everybody, even prophets and saints and clairvoyants and seers and visionaries and artists and whatever, they depend on me. And Jesus wants always to show everybody that he does not depend on anybody and that is just the illusion of the ego. These people ask Jesus not from the heart. They don't need a healing or a miracle. They ask from the ego, show us. Yeah? Show us who you are. And even when they see it, they actually don't believe. And then they know that Jesus is taking out demons. And just two minutes before, they said, this man does it with the prince of the demons. It's by Belzebub that he does it. That means even if he does it, they will say that he does it with Belzebub, or they will invent some other shitty thing. And Jesus knows this. It's an intellectual, cold curiosity, which is just trying to pull me out in the open. They will not derive any faith from this. They will only derive even more hatred and even more envy from this. And basically they, being demonic, they don't deserve anything. I am doing this to people who will gain faith and to people who will uh, kind of turn to God. But, this, but these people, they never turn to God because their question is asked from the wrong place. And that is why Jesus is suddenly very stern with them, and while he is lavish with his miracles when he thinks so, with this kind of people he suddenly becomes very nasty, 
almost provocative or whatever. And he says, the only miracle which you are going to see is the miracle of the prophet Jonah, which is explained low here immediately, because it's a thing from the prophet Jonah, one of the old prophets. And he says it. He explains how he sees it. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That simply re refers to his future murder and burial where he will be dead for a few days. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Nineveh were the outsiders, they were the Babylonians, the ones which the Jews were hating traditionally because they had been slaves to Babylon and therefore those were kind of some of the people on top of the blacklist. There are some people on top of the baddies. And he says, even the people of Nineveh will condemn this generation for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now one greater than Jonah is here. He speaks about himself. Those people, enough, they listened to Jonah and they repented and they changed their ways. And you, in spite that you are talking with me that I am obviously bigger than Jonah and you can't see it and your heart is so hardened that you won't listen. And therefore, he simply predicts a very bitter future. The Queen of the South, that's the Queen of Sheba, the famous a queen of Sheba, which is historically supposed to belong to today's Ethiopia, and that's a whole story about that, I won't go into that. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. He is not at all lacking self-confidence, this Jesus. He knows basically he's bigger than David, he's bigger than the temple, he's bigger than the prophets, he's bigger than Jonah and Solomon. And he simply says, if those people, their heart resounded for, with that wisdom and they came and repented and changed their ways and you, and I'm coming here and raising the dead and giving you the direct gift of God and you do not, then aren't you a bad tree? Aren't you showing that you are demonic? So in this way, Jesus is very much splitting the Jewish society in two. Those who believe in him and those who did not believe in him. As simple as that. And this splitting is very painful and it is an act of provocation. And he does it uh, in a very, very peculiar way. And uh, here he gives another parable. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, that means something was purified, and here he makes allusion directly in this context to the fact that uh, Moses did this purification, and he had to fight quite a bitter struggle with the worshippers of the golden calf and all those weird people. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. That's the destiny of the demonic and especially of the diabolic spirits. They can find their fulfillment only by possessing human beings, only by tormenting human beings. That's their meaning. That's their dharma. It's not a dharma. It's a twisted dharma 
but that's what they think they have to do. Therefore, send out, they wander through arid places seeking rest and do not find it. They are infernal spirits and because of this they are in hell. They sit and boil in hell. They sit and are in arid places and find no rest. That means the demons and the devils are not happy when they are not possessing human beings. They are in hell. They belong to the hell as well. And it's no fun to be of hell. That is why the demons and the diabolic spirits, when they, they only possess, they only do the evil things because they are anyhow in hell and they have got nothing to lose. They are in agony. They are exactly like the human being who is having a terrible pain and because of that pain becomes very nasty, becomes very evil, tortures his family, tortures his lovers, tortures the people around him and behaves like a terrible person because actually he is the first one who is in agony and he simply externalizes it. He sprays everybody with his existential mud, with his existential misery. And therefore, that's what the devils are. They are creatures of hell. To be in hell, even as an, act, as a, as an actor, even as one who acts, is no fun. To be in hell is still to be in hell. Many people imagine that in hell, only those who are sent to be punished, they suffer, and the devils are having fun. They are just coming and probing people with their forks, and, uh, but they do not suffer. They seem to have a nice life, and from time to time they take a lunch break and they go and drink a beer with the other devils and have fun of all those poor souls. It's like the devils are... No, they suffer as well. That's the problem. The devil is like a rabid dog. The devil is like an agonizing animal, like a wounded animal, which because it is full of evil, it must shine that evil around it. And it is like rabid. It is doing things which are evil like this. And that is why he says very clearly, see, if you break away the diabolic spirits, the demonic spirits from the human beings, what's left for them? Nothing but to stay in hell. So basically, they actually simply try to cling. It's exactly like a man drowning, trying to cling to another man, and they drown together. What's the use that the, man, that the drowning man clinged to the person who tried to save him, and in the end they drowned both tragically? It's nothing. It's irrational. A man who is in the throes of evil will automatically commit some more evil in an organic way. That's why I said the forces of evil don't really have a strategy like they are simply evil organically. That is why the evil never destroys its own. They are part of the same league, part of the same suffering. So this, this evil spirit about which you say it's a parable was finding no rest and uh, then it says I will return to the house I left. That means it will try again. Why not? If you have been alcoholic once, you might become an alcoholic again. If he wants to try, because that's your weak spot, isn't it? And therefore, for him is nothing but go back to hell and cry. And he cannot, he does not want to do that. He wants to drown together with you, or with as many as possible. That's the pure evil, the pure destruction. When it arrives, 
it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. The man has been purified by it. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. He obviously talks at a social level. He uses a parable for a man, and it works for the way the demonic things are working. That is why you need to have ceaseless vigilance, because remember that the diabolic forces never sleep, and that's how they try to put you asleep, to say, ah, relax, there is no danger of the diabolic. Yes, there is. Jesus all the time speaks about it, and many, many high spiritual people, they have all the time warned that there is a dark side of the force, so to speak, and that is aggressive, and it is trying to destroy inordinately, organically, blindly. And therefore, Jesus says, relapsing, it can be even worse, because the demonic forces, they will strengthen their attack, because they are desperate, what to do? And they, he, he comes and brings seven more spirits, even weaker than him, and then he goes. That's a test, it is being tested. You have been purified, now let's see. I'm sometimes appalled when I see this kind of things. It works in a smaller scale as well with people spiritualizing in yoga. They do a little bit of yoga and then if they don't go over a certain level so that their heart should be awakened, so that they truly should love themselves, so that they truly should respect themselves, so that they truly should want to give themselves the best, so that they truly should love God and abide by that, then they go home and they relapse in some of their old habits, and they go down worse than before. I've seen examples, I've had pupils in Rishikesh and wherever, suddenly going a little bit through it, manifesting apparently great, beautiful things, and then suddenly going down big time because of allowing themselves to relapse because, so normally, what? They should have been kept in an ashram under strict surveillance for a couple of years until they would have been grown up enough to know what expects them and to be able to have their own core, their own stability, their own individuality. But if not, remember that that is a danger. And that is why Jesus actually says this is going to happen to this generation. He basically says... This generation was taken from a certain demonic level by Moses, who purified it, and now because they are rejecting the truth, they are going on an even deeper level, and they are going to get in trouble. Because it's like a test. You have been offered the number one position. You have been the spearhead of spirituality. You have been given the top position. And what are you making out of it? abomination, and you cannot even see the truth when you see it in front of your eyes, then where is the aspiration? Where is the heart? Where is it? Then you simply are going to be occupied by the demonic forces again. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. <clears throat> this shows his mother, first of all, the famous Virgin Mary, 
she was not very familiar with the spiritual teachings. That means Jesus, all the time, seems to have spoken openly. That means this was a pretty open gathering. It was not that you had to pay an entrance ticket to get in there or whatever. And although Jesus is speaking openly, just the way I'm talking to you now here in a more or less public way, and anybody would be able to just step in and sit and listen, his mother is not stepping in to listen. She is waiting outside, which can tell immediately that there is a disagreement. It's like you have not seen, if you have never seen, then you would know it's like the mother of Yogananda, you know. She never came really to one of the great lectures of yoga of Yogananda. It's like the mother of Ramana Maharishi. She never was coming there to meditate with Ramana all the time. Because Ramana was the little stupid kid whose ass she had wiped for years and years, and uh, therefore it's difficult to assume that something which came out of your own womb can be smarter and bigger than yourself when you have seen it in weakness and in childhood and in ignorance and in smallness and in whatever. And therefore, as I told you, it's difficult for the family and people like this to accept anything spiritual from one of their family because they already are brainwashed. They think that they know that person. So the mother of Jesus is apparently thinking, my boy is on a trip, you know. My boy has become a firebrand preacher. My boy is becoming a brainwasher, a sect leader, a weirdo. There he is congregating with a lot of weirdos and going around and preaching scandalous things. And he seems to be about to get himself in trouble. And we, I, my mother at least, we are decent citizens of this place here. And I just came to talk to him, to kind of do uh, like this. And in this way, I recognize this situation so very perfectly. Uh, it's kind of uh, obviously what is happening. It's kind of, I have seen it in my own family. If my mom would come now here, she would never step in this yoga hall. She would wait for me outside because she has to tell me something very important. But it's kind of what I do here. She's not interested at all and she thinks I'm a bit crazy. And this is a trip which perhaps will be over one day. It's exactly the same thing. It's kind of uh, I'm having a special relationship to you because I'm your mom. I'm not going to mix with all those fools who listen to your stupid words because they are just some brainwashed people with whom God knows what you do there. I don't want even to listen to all these shitty things which you tell to people because it's none of my concern. I know you very well, you are my son, and so on. So I'm waiting here, please come, I have a word with you. It's like I always feel myself more privileged, more special. Here it is, the mother of Jesus and his brothers are waiting out to have a word. They couldn't come in like everybody else. They couldn't listen. They obviously were not interested in this. And uh, the second part of this speaks about the brothers of Jesus. Uh, in fact, the word which is used is a word which means siblings, uh, relatives. Uh, it's a word, I cannot even quote to you that word. And even the analysis taken in Aramaic, because the, the original text of this is in Greek, but uh, the, when that was rendered backwards in Aramaic, and also it was considered in the apocryphal, in the Gnostic Gospels, they found out that the word used for it, whatever, that word is because I don't know it by heart. You can find it in the scholarly studies 
of Gnostic uh, scriptures is a word which can as well mean cousins, close relatives. Because of this, we are having this classical discord in the church. The fundamentalistic churches such as the Orthodox, the Catholics and others, they say no way, these are the cousins, some blood relatives from the family of Jesus which happened to go with his mom around, but they cannot be brothers. Why? Because Virgin Mary was such a holy woman that as soon as Jesus came out of her lower passage, she never touched any dick anymore. She never had any child anymore. She was, that was the one and only vaginal penetration in her only life. Jesus was the first and last. So basically Virgin Mary had nothing to do with sex anymore and therefore uh, she was, uh, there, there are no brothers or sisters of Jesus. Other people uh, who are not going to do this starting with the Protestant church and others, they say there is no need to go to this length. They simply say it is very possible that after having uh, Jesus, according to the laws of the time where women were not even accounted for, they were just uh, having a very humble position in the society, it's difficult to presume that suddenly the father of Jesus, the good Joseph, didn't ask for some marital rights, that he was not getting a hard-on from time to time and wishing to put it in his wife or whatever. So basically they say it's more logical to presume that since Virgin Mary was not touched by a super-consciousness out of day one just like this, she suddenly felt that after this she had to become a nun and an ascetic and completely refraining from sex. This is uh, the kind of thing which produces scandal. The canonical churches, the dogmatic churches, they say this word doesn't mean actual brothers, it means some blood relatives, at the best some cousins of Jesus, and uh, the others say, be relaxed. It actually means some brothers, and it doesn't diminish with anything the merit of Virgin Mary, because the merit of Virgin Mary was that actually she brought to the world this exceptional divine spirit called Jesus. And what she did afterwards, if she ate too much or she ate too little, if she ate meat or she didn't eat meat, if she did this or, she, or if she had sex or she didn't, that would be completely secondary and it would not diminish the size of her gigantic personality, of her gigantic influence on the history of this planet. That is why some people say, well, what do you want? I can worship the Virgin Mary, even if she had the sexual life after she gave birth to Jesus for another ten years or whatever. I mean, why not? She was not practicing yoga at that time. She was not an ascetic. She was a married woman having a child born in pretty miraculous conditions. So, you know, the human body is the human body. She probably lived by the laws of the human average body as she and her husband were expected to. But uh, this is the place where the church has come with the official church, the Roman Catholic, the Orthodox Church and others. They come with their theology and they say this is a subject you should not dig into. Listen to what the, some great saint has said. Virgin Mary was virgin all the time. Basta. You know, it's kind of, it's a perfectionist thing 
it's an archetype, and it's kind of, uh, uh, we think that if we create the image of Virgin Mary perfect, then people are going to respect her more, love her more, worship her more. Perhaps it's true. In history, it has often worked that people with this immaculate conception doctrine and with these things about uh, Virgin Mary being virgin and so perfect and so ideal and so everything, they felt that they could worship her, transfigure her into a kind of goddess of Christianity, make her the mother of the universe, the mother of all Christians, the whatever and whatever. Therefore, this is simply a matter of the mind, how to trigger faith. Some people would say, look, I can worship Virgin Mary tremendously because there are other great women on this planet who might have been having some sexual activity and still they are great enlightened beings and so on. So it's, not, it's only in the Judaism and Christianity and the others that sex has such a stain on it as the original sin and we can't have Virgin Mary having done that. Nobody is asking themselves if Virgin Mary killed animals and ate their flesh, because that seems to be okay with the Jewish Christian God. But if she put it in her vagina, that seems to be a real offending thing, and that we cannot have it. You can see that it's simply a matter of background from the culture where it comes, and these people have simply the theologians, they simply try to build a wall of appearances. I, for one, personally, do not feel that I respect or worship less the super-personality of Virgin Mary, just because uh, the, some paragraph in the Bible can be interpreted that she had further chi children after Jesus, or she didn't have further children after Jesus. For me, she is the same wonderful Queen of Heaven and the same wonderful being, either one way or the other, because that would not affect anything of her personality. And therefore, I think that this is a sterile theological struggle, but the Bible contains this disturbing reference to the brothers of Jesus, which has raised a lot of uh, discussions. And they are out there, arrogantly wanting to break the dialogue, and to have Jesus come and speak to them, because they were so special. And Jesus, of course, will give them the lesson which they deserve because of this, which uh, shows that he was indeed, like Mahatma Gandhi, detached. He might have loved them very much, but he was ready to kick their ass as well uh, with the great love with which he had for them. So, someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. With this, Jesus redefines family. He says it is not the blood family which matters. Jesus himself apparently he was more close to his disciples and to people listening to his words than he was to his own brothers or members of the family, and perhaps mother as well. He lived his life with those people. He chose to share even the moment of his death and everything, and the last supper and whatever he wants with the others. 
that is a very obvious thing there and therefore there is no comment to be done further on that here Jesus indeed shows his real attitude towards all these family ties remember the family ties are one of the ultimate blindings of this you can see it we are in Hali, in, in we are in Kali Yuga and one of the main shits spread by Hollywood dream making machine and Kali Yuga materialistic propaganda is all this theme of all the stupid American movies with fathers and sons and families and always it has to have something to do with the family even in the Star Wars uh, eventually the last guy couldn't be a Jedi unless he was the son of because it all runs in the family it's the blood which runs the show and so on no it is not the son of Albert Einstein was an idiot and so was the son of Mahatma Gandhi they were gits, both of them, stupid gits and they never understood what their fathers were like and what they were so all these kind of things, they are completely useless and it becomes one of the Kali Yuga pathetic thing when people try to say that Shivananda was born in the family of the descendants of the great Tamil saint Abracadabra, you know. Who cares about the Tamil saint Abracadabra and his stupid family, you know. It's kind of, it's a complete, complete ridiculousness because your spirituality doesn't come from the family. Actually, as Jesus says, quite the contrary. The family will be the first one to kick your balls about your spirituality, not to support you in any way. And in this way, this is again a proof, it shows a very discreet light. Those who can read between the lines can visualize the situation and realize that the grace of God has made possible this great miracle also for Virgin Mary and so on, but at the same time the relationships don't work in this way with the family. That is why I'm telling you this again and again because the New Age people started falling into the same Kali Yuga Hollywood dream making machine in which even in the New Age thing they start becoming all kind of family businesses and so on. It's a denaturation of spirituality. The genuine spirituality is not in the family. Neither the mother or the children or whatever the brothers of Rumi, neither the mother or the children of Buddha, neither the mother or the children of Milarepa, none of them was spiritual. You search a thousand very spiritual people, make a list of them, and hardly, hardly you will find some blood relative here and there who hardly, hardly more like exceptions, like one in a hundred is perhaps an exception that does that. That is why the spiritual life in this way, it is a cruel life. It is asking you to have courage because the family gives us this warm nest this safety as long as I am with my mom and dad nothing wrong can happen to me always I will I can fall back onto my family relations when everybody leaves me I always can run squealing to the lap of my mom and dad and complain about how bad the world was with me but what about if you move to the other end of the world and there is no more mom and dad what if they die early and there is no more mom and dad? Then you have to live your life bravely. No safety net, no reserve. You burn your bridges behind you, you burn your ships behind you. Live 
alone live with God. There is no mother and father. There is no brother and sister. Live in the mercy of God. Your mother and father and friends is God. Rely on God totally. Therefore, remember that here we are having a pernicious problem, a problem which always comes, and I have already spoken against it, and in repeated instances, Jesus comes back, or the story of Jesus spins back, turns back to this delicate issue. Of course, the Christian church becoming an institution, becoming an institution exactly as the Pharisees and those people from that time, now the new Pharisees have become the theologians and the priests of the Christian church who cling to the status quo and now they don't want anything new. Now you are the new heretic and so on. And they would rather burn you at stake rather than accepting any reasonable spiritual truth. Then of course becoming an institution, they started promoting this thing. Suddenly Christianity coming from a hobo like Jesus, becoming from a madman, who roamed wildly and had no house and no family and nothing, suddenly Christianity after 500 years or 1,000 years or whatever starts becoming a Swedish bourgeois pink candy about family, respect your parents, be a decent, grow a family and so on. Never did Jesus say that. Never did the fathers of the desert say that. They were wild men and wild women who had a very different way of living and they simply said, cut this illusory safety net which makes you believe that you have any security in this world. You don't have. It's illusory. That simply may, gives you a false sense of security. It's better to live on the edge, to feel every moment, I could be dead tomorrow. I could die any moment. My life is a risk, is a continual risk. I am living dangerously. I'm living with no safety here. I'm living in the fast lane. With the family, you'll always be slowed down and have the tendency to kind of, you know, make compromises. A man like Jesus is not at all liking any compromise on this. And he says, if you can cope with your family and keep it at the right distance and not get attached and not experience this lukewarm, uh, fake feeling, it's okay, let your family be there. Ramana Maharishi, in the last years of her life, he had his own mom living in his ashram there. Not that he paid any special attention to her, exception made that when she died, and it was indeed significant. Else, nothing more than that. And therefore, if you can cope with it, like everybody is equal to you, and those who are in the will of God, those are your brothers and sisters, that is your family. Your family is the family of God. Then go with it. And if on the contrary you feel that the family is like a lodestone hanging on your throat and it is making you imbecile and slow and dull and all the rest, break away from it with a heroic effort and live your life dangerously because it's just a numbing of your senses which tells you, oh, I have some security. No, you don't have. You may die tonight. You may die right now. It's all a big risk. We are living in a very, very adventurous universe where anything can happen any moment. But this family thing is numbing your senses and therefore it's putting you asleep and we don't want that. I will stop here. It is late enough. I will see if you have any questions.
questions or problems with this. We have lost a bit of time because of this storm thing, but uh, it was still good. We managed to go to a new paragraph from, or two paragraphs, I guess, from the Gospel of Matthew. Now we are supposed to start the paragraph 13 or something like this. Questions, if there are any, if you'd like me to clarify any of those things more. One of the most characteristic is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit directly. Um, I don't remember them by heart. There are three or four or five mentioned, one of them being this, which I said, one of them being the cultivation or the accepting of a state of hopelessness, that means to live your life without hope, with hope of salvation, that means to abandon the hope of salvation. I'm afraid one of them, it might have been uh, put later, many people argue that this one might have been put by the ecclesiastic church authorities in time because of men living together in monasteries and to make sure that this was not happening. But on the other hand, before there existed Christian monasteries, the Jews themselves seemed to be pretty allergic to that. Uh, proof being the myth of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, per, if I remember correctly, even male homosexuality is put as being one of those four or five ones, which is not an uh, elegant thing, and which indeed is raising a big question mark, very politically incorrect again today, because we have come to accept it as being one of the facts of life, but according to the fundamental Christian theology, that's worse than murder. So it's kind of a, it's an offense which goes worse than murder. Uh, that in itself is a discussable thing because it's not coming from the Bible. It's something which is later defined throughout the Christian tradition. And I don't know enough Christian history or theology to tell you who came up with it, where it's the first time that it appears in the scripts who made the first list of those